Sometimes our imaginations are captured by the possibility of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influenced the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. On this episode, episode 20, Flat Earth Theory, Part 3. What is the conspiracy driving the subversion of Flat Earth Theory? How has Flat Earth thinking evolved in modern day? Can the recognition of a psychological disorder explain and dismiss away the attraction Flat Earth has? Or is advancing scientific discovery really to blame for our growing interest in alternative reality? This time on Conspiracy Theoryology, we will smooth out the wrinkles and breach the ice wall of confusion as we discuss the conspiracy of deception, contemplate the reality of simulation, and even journey across space-time to finally find our fascination with Flat Earth Theory. Howdy, theoryologists. Okay, so this episode is a few days later than I planned, but honestly, you'll understand why as we get through it. It's a lot of stuff that I knew we would get to, but it it all just made my head explode, so I had to work through it in digestible chunks. Before continuing, though, if you haven't listened to parts one and two, you definitely need to pause this and go back and listen. We'll be here when you get back. For those of you already up to speed... This time, we will really pull together the reason for first exploring the concepts of belief and perception. I knew we would need to have a good context of those ideas before we jumped into the evolution of Flat Earth Theory. Our discussions previously have approached Flat Earth as a, as a proposed idea, really a hypothesis to be tested and proven. But of course, we like to talk conspiracy. And yes, Flat Earth does have its conspiracies. In one sense, the conspiracy is that of cover-up, an effort to hide the truth. In another sense, it's the idea of a flat earth itself that is the conspiracy, or at least a means of conveying the conspiracy. The idea that reality contradicts perceived reality. That the natural laws that govern the way we understand the world are there to hide a true reality. Perhaps even programmed to deceive. Finally, there is the conspiracy of collective consensus, the idea that the scientific community and even the general population simply dismisses Flat Earth because it's a threat to the reality we've made for ourselves and feel comfortable in. So, let's begin. The first conspiracy really is is the one that that kick-started the resurgence of, of Flat Earth theory. It's, it's the space race conspiracy. I mean, the, the round Earth lie with its orbiting moon has been used to support the lie of the moon landing hoax. The moon landing was, of course, faked to establish a, a leading, albeit false, a lead in the space race and Cold War advantage. 
due to the success of the elaborate ruse, a concerted effort to propagate the round earth lie became an essential and necessary endeavor in order to hide the truth of the moon landing hoax. Admitting the truth of the flat earth model, at least in in some form, would be to admit that there is no moon upon which to land. Ironically, one of the essential arguments disputing the moon landing program is the existence of the Van Allen radiation belt, which sits between us and the moon, which purportedly cannot be crossed by humans because it would be lethal. Now, there is a bit of cognitive dissonance there, uh, but this is the theory that is espoused on the Flat Earth Society website. At least, it was first envisioned by the founder of the Flat Earth Society, by Samuel Shenton. Now, there are some possible less sinister motives for fake space travel uh, that, you know, the key boil down to the motivations, um, simply that of greed, right? In which NASA is really just an embezzlement front worth billions of dollars or that, or really that it's of ignorance, right? In that case, NASA doesn't even realize the earth is flat. I mean, it's simply faking space travel, never really got bothering to go beyond the edge of the atmosphere, most likely because they aren't even able to. They depict the Earth as round simply because the general public already believes it to be round. But that's the conspiracy that's been, that, that reestablished, I should say, the, the, the flat Earth model and, and brought it in. Uh, of course, we've advanced decades beyond the Cold War, um, at least uh, during that space race. Um, and so flat Earth theory has evolved right? As we discussed in in part two, beliefs can change, especially when one opens themselves to question the basis and the subsequent rationalization made to establish one's core beliefs. Well, you know, what's more open-minded than contemplating an entirely different shape of the planet on which we live? Popular podcasts such as the Flat Earth Podcast and Flat Earth Conspiracy they have more complex explanations and propositions. Um, really, it comes down to the matrix theory, right? We live in a construct. Our, our perceptions are manipulated, and our beliefs are being formulated on intentional deception and fabricated facts in order to control. But if that's the case, then what exactly is this simulation, this artificial construct Is it as simple as making movie references and picking the coolest sci-fi scenario? Or, you know, is it more nuanced? Well, within the Flat Earth community, there there seems to be two main perspectives, at least as far as I can tell from an outside observing uh, observation point. The first is that of the figurative construct. This is more directly a, a construction of manipulation. The Earth is physically flat. The sun and moon are the same size, and we are contained by an ice wall. The construct is actually one of control and manipulation in order to maintain a lopsided control structure of wealth, political power, and social control. I know this simply sounds like the space race cover-up, but this is more than just cover-up and misdirection. This is the idea of an all-encompassing, cradle-to-grave mass conspiracy to a scale that is terrifying in its implication. The structure of government, the education system, 
are travel infrastructure, communications, history, art, literature, all faked. All to falsely shape our perceptions, and all explained under a false layer of quote-unquote science built on a lie. The second construct is a physical construct, and, and the belief that the earth is flat really has become metaphorical, because it's really no longer a matter of a physically flat earth, but more that reality itself is flat. It's an image, a projection. We live in an artificial construct in which our perceptions and comprehensions of reality are shaped by artificial parameters. It's all fake. We truly live in a matrix, plugged in and downloaded. It's really not important what the physical world is because we can't possibly see it. We live in a video game of sorts. You know, opinions as to the architects of the simulated construct, really, they vary. It could be a god, it could be an alien civilization, or even our future selves. So, theoriologists, why does this fascinate us so much? Is it because it all just sounds so crazy? No, it's because it actually starts to make too much sense. And even if you don't think it should, it does. <laughs> and here's why. This time we're actually going to target, as we look at our theoriology, the psychological perspective first. And I'm doing that because it's just one piece. And this time, it's the idea is that of something called philosophical depersonalization and derealization. See, depersonalization is it's described as feeling disconnected or detached from oneself. Individuals that experience depersonalization report feeling that they're an outside observer right, to their own thoughts or their body, and they report feeling a loss of control over their thoughts and actions. I mean, even in some cases, individuals may be unable to accept their reflection as their own, or the sense of an out-of-body experience. With that, derealization is described as a detachment from one's surroundings. Individuals experiencing derealization well, they report perceiving the world around them as foggy, dreamlike, and surreal, or visually distorted. So, of course, depersonalization is a very self-focused uh, experience, right? A separation of self, whereas derealization is, is a separation of the world and a detachment of one's surroundings. Okay, so now we've got those defined. Now, let's look at it. Is that common? Does it matter? That sounds strange, right? You probably haven't heard of it. Well, depersonalization, derealization disorder, it, it was once considered rare. I mean, with lifetime occurrences um, really at about the 1% to 2% range of the general population. Now, this, this is a chronic form of the disorder, and, and it's had a prevalence uh, of, oh, you know, less than 2%. While these numbers, they do seem small, depersonalization, derealization experiences have been reported by a majority of the population with varying degrees of intensity, right? While brief episodes of depersonalization or derealization can be common in the general population, I mean, even upwards of 50 to 70% experience it at some point in their lives. The disorder itself is only diagnosed when the, the symptoms 
that cause substantial distress or impair social and occupational areas of functioning. So, what are the obvious implications of this depersonalization and derealization in considering our intrigue with Flat Earth? Well, the first point is apparent, though perhaps coincidental. As I pointed out, upwards of 2% of the population suffer chronic depersonalization. Remember the previous episode when we covered the survey indicating that approximately 2% of the survey group felt certain that the Earth was flat? Is it a stretch to consider that when one feels detached from the world and finds their surroundings surreal and distorted or separated from themselves, that they might reconsider their perceptions of the world around them? See, when you find yourself grasping to return to a, a grounded state, You look around for something real. You look at the world around you. Not what it's supposed to be at grand scales or reference to depictions. You look in front of you, and what do you see? A flat world. A straight horizon. You don't feel a spin. You don't feel contour. You don't see a curve. That's reality to hold on to. Now, that's just conjecture on my part but I don't think unreasonable. And it may explain the ardent believers. But what about the rest of us? Remember, it's a small percentage that experience the disorder. But most of us have experienced depersonalization. Most of us knew at some point what it felt like not to trust the world around us as being real. So, we see why the Earth is flat. Or, why flat earth theory may sound appealing. The majority of us experience at least moments when reality seems rather disconnected, when it doesn't really make sense and we don't have a place in it. And those moments can be frightening in that realization, but can also be enlightening, almost revealing. Is that all it is? Is this just a philosophical journey or psychiatric episode, a vision quest of the soul that makes this a fascinating topic that is ultimately independent of the real world. Perhaps not. The psychological implications, they're only part of the explanation. Another possibly larger influence is the quintessential opposition to flat earth theory, the field of advancing science. The very thing that gives us our truths about the world and insists that our physical understanding of the earth is settled and firmly rounded is actually doing its very best to thoroughly put our perceptions and beliefs into a tailspin. Actually, science is just as doubtful of our understanding of reality as the flat earth community, maybe even more so, because The scientific community is doubtful at an epic scale. I mean, a universal scale. So let's step away from flat earth theory for a little bit and look at some of the reality bending ideas currently being explored within the more accepted realms of scientific study. First, I think it's important to point out that disks, well, they're all over the place in space, right? The solar system is a relatively relatively flat and disc-shaped structure. The Milky Way galaxy, a spiral galaxy, well, it's pretty flat and disc-shaped. And the universe? We aren't quite sure what shape it is, but 
there are definitely some ideas, and they make flatter theories seem downright boring in comparison. Now, I'll do my best to relay these with just explanation. But if you want some good visual representations of many of these ideas, well, I'd check out the YouTube channel, PBS Space Time. I go to it all the time. It's fun, and it's, it's informative, um, and it's visually interesting. And it puts a lot of these uh, ideas in context. My explanations don't come from uh, that, that uh, YouTube channel, but they really do uh, an, actually a great job of making many of these wild ideas digestible. So, let's tackle that. What is the shape of the universe? Well, string theory and the flatness of the universe. How about that for a topic? Okay, avoiding the temptation to explore the depths of string theory an effort which I would inevitably fail. I'm going to highlight some concepts as outlined in an article appearing in Scientific American back in 2011. Even this well-thought-out article, which is meant to conceptualize the idea for the curious layman, it made me cross-eyed. So bear with me, and here's the checklist. One, the universe has three spatial dimensions and one additional dimension for time, giving us a space-time of four dimensions. But when string theory is considered, the universe actually has nine spatial dimensions, which brings us to a 10-dimensional space-time. Number three, the universe, that three-dimensional or nine thing in which we exist, is flat. Number four, the universe is infinite. But number five, the universe is 84 billion light-years wide. So it's finite. What the, what, what? Okay, let's, let's first address and eliminate time, right? Time is a dimension, and it's one that the rest of the spatial dimensions are traveling along. Time gives us the perception of progress, of one moment to the next, of this, then that progression. Without time, everything exists at once. So, we can take that as a given, and we can leave the discussion to space only, and we can limit our conversation to the three-dimensional space. The other six are apparently all curled up within the big three. So there, we have a well-worn, recognizable three-dimensional space, except that it's flat. It's a, it's a flat plane, except where it's been warped. See, matter and energy warp space. We've all seen the visual of a sheet held flat and taut. A ball is dropped in the middle, causing the sheet to dip in the middle. Now, roll a smaller ball from one side to the other. It doesn't go straight, but instead follows the curve of the depression and starts to rotate around the ball in the center. There, that's how we all learned about gravity. That's also how a flat space gets curved. In fact, gravity is how matter gets three-dimensional at all. If matter didn't warp space, then it would all have just stayed right microscopic or smaller and spread out across flat space. But instead, tiny matter forms tiny divots in space, attracting tiny matter, making larger matter with bigger divots, and so on. So large that space needs a third axis or dimension to address these growing clumps of matter that no longer exist on just a a plane. And space itself is now three-dimensional because it's as folded as a well-used bedsheet. Okay, 
Granted, none of that is mind-blowing. It's pretty standard physics class stuff, right? But let us not forget that this sheet apparently goes out infinitely. Really? But we know it started with the bang, right? And it's expanding. How can it expand if it's already infinitely large? And if it's infinitely large, how can we measure width? Let alone determine that it's nearly 90 billion light years wide. Well, when we talk about a determined size, what scientists mean is a determined size of the visible universe. This is the stuff that we can see. As we look farther and farther out into space, the light farthest away is traveling toward us at, you guessed it, light speed, which apparently may be variable rather than constant, but we'll save that discussion for another day. Scientists then use fancy math to determine how long that light was traveling. And there you go. A light year distance. The light that has traveled the greatest distance is showing us stuff that's so old, it's basically just microwave radiation. And that's the edge. The edge of what's visible. But let's talk a bit more about that edge, that edge of the universe. We've talked about the width of the universe and how that is simply the visible universe that has matter and energy type stuff that's bending up our otherwise flat space. But what's beyond all that stuff? Remember, the universe is infinite. And since all that stuff ends at the visible universe boundary, what is beyond that? The universe keeps going. The theory of cosmic inflation gives us a universe that is at least 10 to the 23rd times larger than the observable universe. That's huge. So outside the border is more stuff. We just, we just can't see it. Apparently, it's a matter of perspective. See, if we instantaneously got to the other side of the universe and looked back in our direction, it would look like we came from the fuzzy radiation-filled edge, too. It's not just that light has to travel from one side to the other for us to see it, which, on a cosmic scale, means stuff we see that is really, really far away is really, really old, but also that space itself is expanding, causing all that matter in the universe to move away from each other as well. So not only are we contending with light speed, but also the light having to travel continuously greater distances between objects in the universe. And then it just keeps on going, infinitely. And what happens when you contemplate infinity? Well, every possible thing. And everything possible. If you have an infinite universe, then there's an infinite permutation of everything imaginable. Just imagine every science fiction story you've ever read, heard, or seen, all of those exist somewhere in this infinite universe. And then imagine that every imagined scenario imagined by those sci-fi stories, those also exist. And then imagine you watching Netflix instead of a podcast that's making your head hurt from thinking this stuff. That you exists. And now you're jealous of infinite universe you. But maybe it does end. And there's an edge. For the sake of discussion, and physicists, please don't cringe, let's use the terms universe and space separately. So space, 
or space-time. It's, it's the dimensional thing that formed with this Big Bang. And the universe is that nothing that space is expanding in. Our wrinkly, flat space exists in a small bubble inside this universe. And this universe has lots of little space bubbles from other Big Bangs occurring all over. Now we have a universe of universes. Some of those bubbles might be like ours, and others could be completely different, with different physical laws and properties. It's kind of like our universe is, I don't know, under a dome. (laughs) So, what are some examples that could make us think about those simulations, right? What about the flat Earth simulations? Well, without flat Earth involved in all, let's talk about the proposition of the holographic universe. Okay, so science has proposed uh, that there is a holographic universe, and it's an idea that was first suggested in the 1990s. And it's one where all the information that makes up our 3D reality plus time is contained on a 2D surface on its boundary. So there was this uh, uh, professor, uh, Costa Skenderis, of mathematical sciences at the University of Southampton, he explained, and I'm going to quote him because I can't say it at all. Imagine that everything you see, feel, and hear in three dimensions, and your perception of time, in fact emanates from a flat two-dimensional field. The idea is similar to that of ordinary holograms, where a three-dimensional image is encoded in a two-dimensional surface, such as in the hologram on a credit card. However, this time the entire universe is encoded. He goes on to comment, Scientists have been working for decades to combine Einstein's theory of gravity with quantum theory, and some believe the concept of a holographic universe has the potential to reconcile the two. So there you have it, the holographic universe. It's actually a fun read. There's more information in the show notes. But let's look at another hypothesis. How about something called the simulation hypothesis? Okay, let's think back to that overused expression, I think, therefore I am, which is, of course, a simplified expression of the ideas espoused by René Descartes in the 17th century, to which he argues that the only thing we can know for sure is that we exist. Everything else could be artificial. We could be plugged into a simulation. In fact, We could be a simulation ourselves. And that was proposed in 2003 by a a philosopher named Nick uh, Bostrom in a proposed simulation argument. In this simulation argument, Nick states, Many works of science fiction, as well as some forecasts by serious technologists and futurologists, predict that enormous amounts of computing power will be available in the future. So, let's suppose for a moment that these predictions are correct. One thing that later generations might do with their super-powerful computers is run detailed simulations of their forebears or of people like their forebears. He continues, because their computers would be so powerful, they could run a great many simulations. Suppose that these simulated people are conscious, as they would be if the simulations were sufficiently fine-grained and if a certain quite widely accepted position in the philosophy of mind is correct. 
then it could be that the case that the vast majority of minds like ours do not belong to the original race, but rather to people that are just simulated by the advanced descendants of this original race. It is then possible to argue that if this were the case, we would be rational to think that we are likely among the simulated minds rather than among the original biological ones. Therefore, if we don't think that we are currently living in a computer simulation, we are not entitled to believe that we will have descendants who will run lots of such simulations of their forebearers. Okay, those are Bostrom's words, but what does he mean by all that? I mean, is it philosophical gobbledygook? No, in, in Bostrom's simulated argument, he doesn't directly argue for or against the idea that we live in a simulation, but rather that one of these three seemingly unlikely propositions must be true, and each, if true, make the other two false. We won't discuss the entire argument at length, although it, it is in the show notes, and it's, it's actually really fun, and I recommend the read. Basically, there are three dilemmas that he hypothesizes. The determination of truth for one of these hypotheses determines the probability that we exist in a highly advanced simulation. So, what's the first one? Dilemma one. A highly technologically advanced post-human civilization is highly unlikely. And that's based on the premise that there is no previous human civilization or species ever that has made it to such an advanced level without first being ended or eradicated first. Nor is there evidence of any other human-like civilization making it to a necessarily advanced technological level capable of such a simulation. So, if this premise is true, then, more than likely, we are real. There is no simulation, because we can't expect any civilization to have ever attained that post-human, highly advanced level. So what's number two? Argument number two, a highly advanced post-human civilization would have no interest in running an ancestor simulation, even if technologically capable. Okay, this, this is a toss-up. It seems reasonable to believe that if we advanced to some ridiculously high-tech post-human status, we would have little interest in simulating something as primordial as us, right? To, to such, at least to such a detailed extent. But at the same time, just look at our civilization. We love simulations. We have video games, VR games. We simulate the weather, war, plate tectonics, pretty much anything we can think to simulate, we do. Anyway, if this premise... uh that interest is unlikely is true, then we probably don't live in a simulation, right? Because they'll have no interest in doing it. And finally, number three, the premise is that we are almost definitely living in a simulation. See, if one and two are false, and that means that we can likely reach a level of highly advanced post-human status, and this post-human civilization would have uh, a high interest in running ancestor simulation, then it is most likely true 
almost definitely true that we are living in a simulation. Obviously, simulation hypothesis has its detractors, but it has stimulated wonderful discussion and debate within the philosophical community. Some have even expanded upon it to postulate multiverse arguments. Others have envisioned means of physically testing the simulation hypothesis. An argument in support of the simulation states that it it accounts for and explains the measurement problem in quantum mechanics, whereby things only become defined when they are observed. All of the gamers out there would understand what that means, right? There are areas that you don't have to worry about because they don't exist until they're loaded and you've moved into the area. Wow. Okay. So, this science lesson, and I use the term lesson very loosely, it's over. Did it have a point? Well, is that why we are so fascinated by Flat Earth? Is that why people get so worked up? Has science simply fried our brains so much that we take out our frustrations on Flat Earth theorists? Again, no. It's not something so visceral as frustration. It's because, as we attempt to understand the universe at large, it makes sense to explore those newfound perceptions and beliefs in context to the world immediately around us. As we finally conclude this exploration of flat earth theory, it should make more sense why we eased into it first by understanding perception and then belief. At the crux of it, those aspects of how we understand and explain our world are the key to explaining our fascination with Flat Earth. When you watch some YouTube video trying to explain the weirdness of astrophysics or quantum mechanics, or hear some discussion about the flatness of space, or a simulation, or holographic form of the universe, it it doesn't attack your core beliefs. We've been told since childhood that we don't understand all the physics of the larger universe, We don't know all the laws of nature, so our core belief is that it's strange and new ideas will come. We expect it. Additionally, we will honestly never have to perceive the edge of the visible universe or see the folds in space-time. Okay, at least not now. (laughs) Maybe in the future. So we don't have to question our perceptions of those concepts. We don't have preconceived notions. In contrast, though, take those same ideas. Flatness as a physical property, a visible edge, a holographic projection, and apply them to the earth. Now, them's is fighting words. Why? Because we, air quotes, know we've at least got this scale of our reality correct, right? Even if physics goes haywire at the smallest quantum level or the largest cosmic scale, at least this level, we know our beliefs are sound. And anyone trying to open up the idea that those beliefs might need to change and that our perceptions might be faulty, well, that throws our only firm grasp out the window. But eventually those moments come when we really do question the world around us, whether it's because of a psychological experience caused by trauma or a growing anxiety within an ever more complicated world, or we happen across a new scientific idea that makes us wonder more than a passing thought about the structure of the universe and everything in it. And when those moments come, 
It's okay to visit those beliefs. It's good to check those perceptions. It's good to tell your seven-year-old self that it may be time to reevaluate why you believe what you believe to be true, even if only to prove it again. If you happen, though, to ever chance across one of those elusive, honest-to-goodness flat-earthers, instead of dismissing them, ask them to explain it. And if you can't provide a persuasive opposition in response, realize that maybe it's your truth that falls flat. Okay, that is all for today. Thanks for joining me as we wrapped up our Flat Earth series. We're done with it. It's in the bag. So please click that follow and subscribe button so that you don't miss future discussions. We're moving on from Flat Earth, I promise. Connect with me via email. Contact at conspiracytheology.com. Join the Facebook discussion group or find me on Twitter at TheriologyPod. Or just recommend that show to others. Please, they'll enjoy it. If you enjoy it, friends will. All the info can be found at the show website, conspiracytheriology.com, including how to support the podcast on Patreon. Music is by Adam Henry Garcia. And as always, if you'd like to hear more of Adam's music, visit adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. He actually has a new album out. It's pretty cool. I'll see you again next time when we tackle another theory and make sense of the public popularity. So until then, remember... Beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology.